0: this is in the arena the debates and
1: lectures of dr william lane craig in this presentation dr craig debates edward Tabash on the subject secular humanism versus christianity for more go to reasonablefaith.org and tonight we have two men who believe that they do indeed have the truth
2: and they want to convince you that their philosophy that they embrace with themselves and that they share with others is indeed the right one. And so tonight we have Eddie Tabash and William Craig and they'll be debating Secular Humanism versus Christianity which one is true and that is indeed the great debate. Here to introduce tonight's debaters and outline the rules is Pepperdine Debate Coach, Greg A Please welcome him.
1: Tonight to hear a debate about a controversy that has persisted for centuries but still extremely relevant today. That debate is Christianity versus secular humanism. Today, tonight, defending Christianity will be Dr. William Craig. Dr. Craig holds two PhDs, one in philosophy, one in theology. He's taught for a number of years, a number of years in Germany, a number of years in Belgium. He's currently a professor of philosophy at the Talbot School of Theology. Dr. Craig has authored over a dozen books on the subject of theology and philosophy and almost 100 scholarly articles on the issue. Defending secular humanism, will be Ms. Eddie Bosch. Mr. Thomas graduated magna cum laude from UCLA and also graduated from Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. He's currently an attorney in private practice in Beverly Hills, is also a part-time municipal judge for the city of Los Angeles. Mr. Thomas is extremely politically active with the California Democratic Party and also run for an office for this California State Assembly. In addition to his other activism, Mr. Thomas is the outreach chair for the Los Angeles branch of the Council for Secular Humanism, and he is officially representing that council in tonight's debate. The rules for the debate are as follows. Each speaker will have a 20-minute opening statement, which will then be followed by a 10-minute rebuttal, and finally by a 5-minute closing presentation. We ask that you hold your applause and any comments that you would have until the end of the closing presentations. At the end of those closing presentations, there will be a 20-minute question and answer period. And so you might want to think about questions that you would like to ask the speakers during that time period. I will be moderating the debate, and I will be keeping time for the debate as well, for the debaters. So if we could have Dr. Craig and Mr. Powell shake hands, we get things started.
2: We are at a Christian university, but in my home area of Malibu. And it's an honor for me to finally get to debate such an eminent Christian apologist. Tonight, I'm going to defend the proposition that the great weight of the evidence in the physical world around us demonstrates that Christianity is not true and that secular humanism is true. Now, in order to prevail in tonight's debate, Dr. Craig must establish that what exists is the God that sends you to hell forever, regardless of how good you are, just for not believing in Jesus. I offered Dr. Craig the opportunity to debate on the topic of whether God exists, and he insisted on defending Christianity. Thus, even if he were able to establish that some generic universal God exists, that would not help him tonight, because he must establish the existence of this partisan Christian God. I want to begin by tweaking out problems generally with supernatural claims. If I were to tell you that 2,000 years ago an ancient warrior was seen by a number of people to divide himself into three separate but complete replicas of himself, and have all three of those identical selves fight side by side in battle, flying through the air and killing enemy warriors with a beam of light emanating from their eyes, you probably would not believe me. But the main reason you would not believe me that the scenario I have just described violates the laws of nature as our experience has come to understand those laws. In no context other than my story about the supposed event a long time ago do we ever encounter evidence that such things occur. Similarly, in no context other than the unprovable hearsay of primitive ancient people as set forth in ancient writings the truthfulness of which we cannot even begin to verify do we encounter claims that the supernatural occurrences which undergird Christianity have occurred. Jesus' resurrection from the dead and ascending into heaven has never been a testable or repeatable phenomenon in our world. Further, the claim that our eternal salvation is dependent upon our believing the miraculous stories about Jesus is also an unbelievable assertion. So let the resurrection happen again today, but under verifiable conditions. If such a singularly unique violation of the laws of nature, as we understand such laws, such as Jesus' resurrection from the dead, did occur, and belief in that occurrence is the precondition of our eternal salvation, it is grossly unfair of God to expect us to rely only upon the hearsay of primitive ancient people that such an event happened. As the philosopher James Keller, who I think is a Christian, has written, why should God expect us today to seriously consider something when God would not expect contemporaries of the event to seriously consider it without a miracle? Two thousand years ago, there were none of the sophisticated means of verification that exist today. We contemporary people cannot be reasonably expected to believe the rantings of primitives in such a superstitious era. Without more direct evidence, it would be only fair if God would repeat such miraculous events so that we can verify them today. Jesus should come back, be crucified again. This time, his body should lie not in some obscure tomb for three days, but should lie in some scientifically advanced research institution with the greatest scientists observing and examining him to make sure that he is indeed dead. Then. He should resurrect and make an announcement that He will ascend into Heaven from the steps of the U.S. Capitol. He should give a couple days notice of this ascension in order for all the media to have their cameras ready. This way our networks could announce, Jesus resurrects, film at 11. The event would be recorded on film. Thousands would also gather to watch it happen live. After taking to the air, Jesus should also fly by every world capital and visit each of the world's leaders before heading upward toward heaven. In Luke 24, 10, 11, it says that the disciples did not believe the story told by the women who supposedly went to the tomb. John 20, 24, 31 says that the disciple Thomas did not believe the others until he supposedly touched the wounds of the supposedly resurrected Jesus. Now these disciples, who were also Jesus' friends and friends with each other, allegedly even saw Jesus' supposed miracles. Were all these people such liars that they couldn't even trust each other? So even Jesus' supposed friends and alleged eyewitnesses had trouble believing each other, how can we be blamed 2,000 years later for not believing these ancient people who we really cannot directly know? We, the people of the world today, need to feel such wounds or be given other direct evidence in order to believe something otherwise so preposterous. I will now defend the virtue of secular humanism, and by secular humanism I mean, an approach to analyzing the natural universe by means of scientific examination and by recourse to direct human experience. Secular humanism is a much more reliable basis than Christianity upon which to build assumptions about the world, because secular humanism allows modifications of currently held positions based on further and better evidence. Secular humanism posits that assertions about the physical universe should be changed in light of improved and more compelling evidence. Christianity, on the other hand, is stuck back there some 2,000 years ago and is not capable of altering any of its assertions, irrespective of how compelling any new evidence would be. Christianity is based on blind faith and will not use even the most probative, compelling evidence, if that evidence contradicts Christian doctrine. I will also now explain why morality based upon the God of the Bible is dangerous and inferior to a secular humanist morality. Dr. Craig and others assert that Christianity provides a superior basis for morality than the secular humanism. However, since the Christianity that Dr. Craig defends is a Bible-based religion, we have to look to the behavior of the Biblical God to see if that God is moral. In the Bible, God orders the killing of whole tribes of people, including the killing of innocent people and innocent children and infants. Uh, on June 15th of 1998, in Dr. Craig's debate against Professor Keith Parsons, in Dallas, Texas. I heard Dr. Craig say that since God gave life to the people he ordered to be killed in the Bible, it was okay for him to take those lives. It was not God, remember, who killed these people directly but ordered others to carry out the slaughter. And yet Dr. Craig justified that in his debate with Dr. Parsons. Does this mean that Dr. Craig would justify it if some group of believers today started to kill off non-believers claiming a command from God? If Dr. Craig protests and says he would not justify such killing, why does he justify what the people supposedly acting on God's orders did in Biblical times? If Dr. Craig says that God used to order people to kill others in Biblical times, but no longer does so, We must ask, on what basis can we be sure that God ever gave direct orders to kill off all tribes of people in ancient times but no longer directs his followers to kill off people today? If Dr. Craig takes this position, it means he is admitting that all sorts of direct communication from God, including direct orders to kill, such as Samuel delivered to King Saul, occurred only during Biblical times. This again raises the specter of why we had miracles back then, but we moderns are denied them today. So we can see that secular humanist morals, based on love of humankind is far superior to morals based on Christian love for the biblical God. In this type of Christian love, it is permissible for people to be killed on God's whim just because he is deemed, this God, to be the creator of all of us. On the secular humanist view, it is not permissible for any person to be killed regardless of whether some powerful invisible force commands it or not. The Bible is so filled with atrocities that we cannot possibly root even any agreed-upon objective basis for morality in it. Yet Dr. Craig says that the loftiest of morals have no stable foundation without the God of the Bible. He also repeatedly said, and has said, that there is no reliable basis to condemn outrageous like rape in a universe without his Biblical God. Well, as I will later point out, the Biblical God has condoned rape. Yet, if there are such things as objective moral values, no one more egregiously violates those standards than the God of the Bible. The amount and nature of evil in the world also makes the existence of an all-powerful, all-good, all-knowing God highly unlikely. If God is all-powerful, He could certainly have created a world with less evil and less calamity. He could have given us a world that is more climactically stable, with less floods, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, fewer hurricanes. He could have created a world without tobacco. He could have made the avocado get smaller. If God loves humanity like He's supposed to, then He could certainly lessen the amount of suffering on this earth. The Bible portrays God as a being who can make anything happen that He wants to happen. This is set forth in Isaiah 46.9.11 and Ephesians 1.11. Thus God could figure out a way for humanity to grow and develop without undergoing the enormous amount of suffering we endure. The news is replete with stories of innocent young children killed by stray bullets, innocent young children maimed and butchered all over the world, innocent people maimed and killed by natural disasters, as well as by human fomented evil. In his debate against Professor Ted, Ted Drange, Dr. Craig argued that some of the most egregious of atrocities have resulted in people coming to know God, and thus the earthly trauma was worth it because it led to eternal salvation. Well, the Holocaust did not result in the surviving Jews coming to know Jesus in any greater numbers, and thus if the Holocaust were meant to be a catalyst to get the traumatized survivors of the concentration camps to come to Jesus, it didn't have such an effect. Being omniscient, couldn't God have seen that this wouldn't work in case of the Jews, and thus spared them the trauma of the Holocaust? If suffering is a warning from God, God should explain how and why and be clear about the warning and what it's for. In a dream or a religious experience, God should say to somebody, You know, I let that stray bullet blow your three-year-old daughter's head off last night because I wanted to send you a message that your inside stock trading deals are completely immoral and totally unfair to your partners. For God could reverberate a voice throughout the house of someone and say, your beautiful young spouse has just been drowned in a swimming accident, so that you will stop your awful software copyright infringements, rather than remaining silent. Now, why is Bangladesh, for instance, singled out as a place of such immense suffering, rather than Beverly Hills or here in Babylon? Why does one soul get to come to earth in a body in a Brentwood mansion, and the other soul is consigned to enter the world in a mud hut in places like Bangladesh? If you want to say that God is rewarding countries where Christianity dominates, then why did God allow the greatest and richest oil reserves to be in Saudi Arabia, a country which is hostile to Christianity and even prohibits Christian evangelizing? Some Christians have argued that sometimes evil brings about great human qualities, such as the exercise of compassion but the exercise of compassion would be consistent with far less evil if this all-knowing omnipotent God had given humans superior empathetic abilities. It has been argued that helping the suffering is a great good and that thus suffering is necessary in order for others to have people to help. But then why are some people located in remote areas or in sometimes very comfortable areas in which they are not given adequate opportunity to learn about great suffering, which their intervention might help to ease. My mother, an Auschwitz survivor, was shattered by her experience by being forced to shovel the ashes of her father and brother after they were gassed and burned at Auschwitz. The psychological problems that she developed and her other difficulties were enormous. There were no improvements in her character or willpower from this experience. It only made her weaker, more afraid and feeling more hopeless about life. Is someone not going to argue that God had this hidden purpose to make her experience Auschwitz and be so broken afterwards so that I, her son, after spending most of my childhood observing her and hearing about her horrible experiences, would grow up to be a major atheist activist? Is that one of God's hidden purposes? Now the strong likelihood that death is the end of our conscious existence makes Christianity implausible. Now, it may be nice to someday float through heavenly spheres of great joy, but what we know about the dependence of self-awareness on the physical brain makes the possibility of conscious survival of death highly unlikely. We come to acquire all knowledge through our brains as we go through the tedious process of growing and learning over a span of years. At the age of two weeks old, none of us has the type of conscious self-awareness that we would wish to hold on to for eternity. Thus, if a two-week-old baby or a three-year-old child dies, Does that child suddenly reconstitute in the hereafter as a fully formed person, speaking a complete language and thinking complete adult thoughts? We know our thoughts and our ideas by the language we speak. That language is learned entirely through sensory input into our brains. If you take a newborn who is completely deaf and completely blind and further situate that person on a remote island without ever having any human contact other than being fed and housed, in such a way so as to avoid climactic discomforts, that person, regardless of how long he or she lives in such a condition, will never develop any level of consciousness or thought process or understanding that would be even minimally cognizable to us as meaningful awareness. If such a person dies after some seven years in this state, will they appear in the hereafter now able to hear, see, and speak a language in which they can communicate ideas, the same as a person who has had a full life in the physical body with all sensory conduits to the brain completely functioning? Will such a person magically now have a meaningful level of consciousness so as to be able to enjoy eternity and understand the glory of the afterlife? the same as one of us who had developed our minds in the normal pattern of studying, learning, by way of sensory input into our brains? If even a blow to the head or Alzheimer's disease can eclipse consciousness, how much more can consciousness be annihilated by the total destruction of the brain? If a two-year-old child is rendered a human vegetable by severe brain damage and exists in that state for 60 years and then dies, does that person all of a sudden appear in full awareness in the hereafter? the same as if that individual had undergone a full life's experiences? In his debate with Professor Doug Jessup, Dr. Craig said that non-physical entities can influence physical events, such as his mind willing his arm to raise, and then he raises his arm. However, Dr. Craig can only raise his arm because his mind is functioning through a physical frame. If he were anesthetized, his mind could not will his arm to raise. So anesthesia can so completely wipe out consciousness, How much more can consciousness be eliminated by the death of the entire body and brain? Dr. Craig has never shown that the things his consciousness can will his body to do would persist in the absence of his physical brain. So for all of the promises of salvation, if you only accept Jesus, Christians have never been able to overcome the evidence of the dependence of our consciousness on our brains in order to make a believable argument that we do indeed survive death in some meaningful fashion in the first place. In face of overwhelming evidence of the dependence of consciousness on the brain and in the absence of evidence that meaningful self-awareness can exist after the destruction of the entire body-brain complex or can develop without a fully functioning brain that receives sensory input, we must conclude that the survival intact of meaningful self-awareness beyond the grave is highly unlikely and therefore Christianity's promise of both eternal salvation for believers and eternal suffering for non-believers is false. Dr. Craig is apparently also an opponent of reason. And he admitted as much in his book, Reasonable Faith. There Dr. Craig wrote that essentially the mere faith and the truthfulness of Christianity must take precedence over any evidence. He goes on to write that even if a person is given no good reason to believe, and given many persuasive reasons to disbelieve, that person is still damned for not believing in Christianity. Thus, Dr. Craig, for all of his attempts to bring reason and argument to bear in his public campaign to persuade society that Christianity is true, is actually an opponent of reason and evidence, asserting that reason and evidence cannot be permitted to interfere with an affirmation based upon some subjective inner sensation that he feels he has had that verifies, at least to him, the validity of Christianity. Dr. Craig is in effect saying, because I think I've had an inner communication from God that Christianity is true, all other people will be damned unless they adopt Jesus as their Savior, even if those other people are never presented with persuasive reasons to think that Christianity is true. I think Dr. Craig's claim of inner experience is arbitrary. He claims that if you look within, God will somehow communicate to you that Christianity is true and that this communication from God is so unmistakable that you have no excuse for not believing it even if you are never given any other evidence of the truthfulness for Christianity. Well, this raises a major problem of subjectivity. Why should Dr. Craig sense what has been communicated to him during his introspection have any greater weight than any other claim to the right of introspection. Tibetan Buddhists, for instance, meditators and yogis spend much more time in intense formal introspective practice than do most Christians, yet the message they seem to get is one of some universal force accessible to anyone who can sufficiently still their mind. Non-Christians of all types, be they followers of other religions, atheists or agnostics, are very often involved in the most sincere study and search for the truth. Yet many of us come to resolutions that differ from each other, but also reject Christianity. Why don't we don't search with less sincerity to Dr. Craig and his fellow Christians. So why does the Christian God hide himself from all of us when it is within that God's power to give us the experience that Dr. Craig claims he has had? The Christian God is really one vicious trickster. In fact, if Dr. Craig is right, he is, that God is a vicious saint. It means Buddhists, Muslims, Hindus, Jews, sincere atheists and agnostics will all wind up in hell regardless of how sincere our search, questing, and doubt has been. This God, the Christian God, if he experienced, would truly be a sadistic monster making Hitler look like a Boy Scout by comparison. Christianity cannot be true. Secular humanism is true. Thank you.
1: If you would, if you would please hold your applause. Dr. Craig will now have
0: didn't let me. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to join my friend Eddie Tabash in debating tonight's secular humanism versus Christianity, which view is true. It's worth underlining in fact that the debate tonight concerns which view is the truth. We're not here to talk about which view I like the best or which view appeals to me the most, but which view is the truth. So how do we discover truth? The answer is that we must use logical arguments, formulated according to the basic rules of logic which have governed all valid reasoning since the time of Aristotle. Emotional appeals and colorful rhetoric may move juries, but they are philosophically useless in helping us get the truth. Now, in order to answer the question before us this evening, we need to have clear definitions of what we mean by humanism and Christianity. Secular humanism, as defined by the Humanist Manifesto, is distinguished by two doctrines. First, that God does not exist. And secondly, that human beings are the foundation of moral value. Thus, in order to show that humanism is true, and we must show that both of these doctrines are true. By Christianity, I mean the view that a personal creator in the universe exists and he has revealed himself decisively in Jesus Christ. We're not here tonight to debate the inerrancy of the Bible or the immortality of the soul. Rather, we're here to discover whether or not a personal creator exists who has decisively revealed himself in Jesus So in tonight's debate, I'm prepared to defend two basic contentions. First of all, that there are no good reasons to think that humanism
3: is true. And secondly, there are good reasons to think that Christianity is true. So let's look at that first
0: basic contention together, that there are no good reasons to think that humanism is true. First, is there any good reason to think that atheism is true? And claims that the evil and suffering in the world disprove God. Two things may be said in response to this. First of all, it is generally agreed among philosophers today that there is no demonstrable inconsistency between the existence of God and evil. So long as it is even possible that God has morally sufficient reasons for permitting evil, it follows that God and evil are logically compatible and he just assumes that if God has such reasons, that these must be evident to us. But clearly, there's no reason to think that that should be true.
2: Secondly, evil
0: actually proves the existence of God. The argument goes like this. Step one, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist.
2: Many atheists
0: and theists alike concur on this point. In the absence of God, there's no reason to think that human beings are objectively valuable. They're just accidental byproducts of nature, which are doomed to extinction individually and collectively in a relatively short time. Moral values are just the byproducts of sociobiological evolution, which help to perpetuate the human species in the struggle for survival. To think that we are intrinsically valuable or that human morality is objective is to be guilty of speciesism, thinking that your own species is the basis of goodness. If some alien beings, as superior to us in intelligence as we are to pigs and cows, were to visit the earth, they would have no reason to regard us as the foundation of moral value any more than we do pigs and cows. Thus, without God, everything becomes relative. Step two, evil exists. This is the premise furnished by the atheist. Three, therefore, objective moral values exist. Namely, some things are evil. Four, therefore, God exists. If objective moral values cannot exist without God, and objective moral values do exist, as is evident from the reality of evil, then it follows logically and inescapably that God exists. Thus far from proving atheism, Eddie has unwittingly given us good grounds tonight to
3: believe that God exists. So, what about that second essential doctrine of humanism, that human beings are the
0: foundation of objective moral value? Is there any good reason to think that this is true? Remarkably, in his first speech, Eddie made no attempt
3: to prove that in an atheistic universe, human beings would have intrinsic moral value. Not only has he not proved this, but I think we've already seen good
0: reason to think that it is false. For consider, either God exists or he does not. Now, if God exists, there's no reason to think that human beings are the basis of objective moral value. Rather, God would be the source and standard of moral value. Human beings are valuable because they're created in the personal image of God. On the other hand, if God does not exist, then, as we've seen, there's still no good reason to think that human beings are the basis of objective moral value. Now, since God either exists or he doesn't, it follows logically that there's no good reason to think that human beings are the basis of objective moral value. And thus, we see two fatal weaknesses in the humanist position. First, there's no good reason to think that atheism is true. And secondly, there's no good reason to think that human beings are the foundation of moral value. And thus we can conclude my first contention. There's no good reason
2: to think that humanism is true. So now let's turn to my second
0: basic contention that there are good reasons to think that Christianity is true. I believe that while the evidence is not sufficient to compel belief, The evidence is certainly enough to rationally warrant belief if you're willing to look at it with an open mind and an open heart. Consider that the first essential tenet of Christianity, that a personal creator of the universe exists. Let me present two arguments in support of this conclusion. The first is called the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Step one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. This premise is highly plausible. It's rooted in the metaphysical principle that something cannot come out of nothing. Rather, things that begin to exist have causes. Two, the universe began to exist. There is abundant scientific evidence for this premise. According to Stephen Hawking in his most recent book, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Notice that since the Big Bang is the creation, not only of all matter and energy, but of physical space and time themselves, it represents an absolute beginning. From these two premises it follows logically, therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, from the very nature of the case as the cause of space and time, this cause must be an uncaused, timeless, changeless and immaterial being of unimaginable power which created the universe. Moreover, I would argue, it must also be personal. For how else could a timeless cause give rise to a temporal effect like the universe? If the cause were an impersonal set of necessary and sufficient
3: conditions, then the cause could never exist without the effect. If the
0: cause were timelessly present, the effect would be timelessly present as well. The only way for the cause to be timeless and for the effect to begin to exist in time is for the cause to be a personal agent who freely chooses to create an effect without any prior determining conditions. And thus we are brought not merely to a transcendent cause of the universe, but to its personal creator. And thus the cosmological argument makes it plausible to believe that God exists. Let's turn now to the second argument for God's existence, the contingency argument. It goes like this. Step one. Everything has a reason for its existence. For familiar concrete objects, the reason is usually given in terms of their cause. For example, the reason the Rocky Mountains exist is because of the collision of continental plates which caused an upheaval in the Earth's crust. Now somebody might ask, well but what about abstract objects, like mathematical entities like numbers and sets and so on? Since these have no causes, what is their reason for existence? The answer is that such entities are necessary beings. And therefore, their non-existence is impossible. The reason they exist is because they are necessary. And hence, everything which exists, whether it is contingent or necessary, has a reason for its existence. Step two, if the universe has a reason for its existence, then that reason is God. This premise is plausible because, by definition, the universe just is all of space-time reality. So if God does not exist, it's hard to see how the universe could have any reason for its existence. There would just be no reason why it exists. It follows, then, that if the universe does have a reason for its existence, that reason must be God. Step three, the universe
3: is a thing. This is evident from the fact that the universe has many unique properties, a certain temperature, a certain expansion speed, a certain density, pressure, etc. Now, if the universe is a thing, and everything has a reason for its existence,
0: it follows logically that therefore the universe has a reason for its existence. But we've already seen that if the universe has a reason for its existence, that reason is God. It therefore logically follows the reason for the existence of the universe is God, whose existence is necessary, not contingent. And thus the contingency argument also makes it plausible to believe that God exists. Now what about
3: that second major tenet of Christianity, that God has revealed himself decisively in Jesus? Jesus at least claimed
0: to be the absolute revelation of God. And God vindicated that claim by raising him from the dead. I maintain that the hypothesis, God raised Jesus from the dead, is the best explanation of the historical facts of the case. There are three main historical facts which are recognized today by the majority of New Testament historians writing on this subject that need to be explained. Fact number one, on the Sunday morning following his crucifixion, Jesus tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. Fact number two, on separate occasions and under different circumstances, various individuals and groups of people saw appearances of Jesus alive after his death. Fact number three, the original disciples suddenly came to believe that God had raised Jesus from the dead despite their having every predisposition to the contrary. These are the facts. The only question is, how do you best explain them? Naturalistic explanations, like uh, the disciple stole the body, or Jesus wasn't
3: really dead, have been universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. The fact is that there just is
0: no plausible naturalistic explanation of these facts. And therefore, it seems to me that the Christian is amply exactly within his rational rights in believing that God raised Jesus from the dead, and He was who He claimed to be. And thus we have good reasons
3: for thinking that God exists, and that He has revealed Himself decisively in Jesus. And therefore we have good reasons for thinking Christianity to be true. Now, many
0: raises a couple of important objections to Christianity. Namely, first, the doctrine of hell. But before we look at that doctrine, or that objection, rather, I think it's important that we clearly understand that doctrine, because I think it is misconstrued. The Bible says that God wants everybody to go to heaven. It says the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, and that God desires everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. The only reason that God's desire is not fulfilled is because people freely reject God's love and grace and so separate themselves from God forever. They are lost only because they resist God's every effort to save them.
2: Now comes Eddie's
0: objection. I think it can be formulated as follows. Step one, if the doctrine of hell is true, God is morally obligated to provide an indubitable revelation of himself to every single person. Step two, God has not done so. Three, therefore the doctrine of hell is not true. Now, notice that even if this argument is successful, it doesn't disprove either of those two essential tenets of Christianity. All it disproves at best is the doctrine of hell. So it really doesn't disprove Christianity. But is the argument, in fact, successful? Well, I think not. I think premise one is clearly false. God is not morally obligated to provide an indubitable revelation of Himself to every person. For that, would destroy human freedom and make our response to God meaningless. Rather, God is obligated only to provide every person with a sufficient revelation of himself for salvation. And the Bible says that God has done that. It says, ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible nature has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So men are without excuse. Moreover, God's spirit speaks to the heart of every human being, drawing him to God. Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. If someone irrevocably refuses to come to God, it is only because he has shut his eyes to the witness of nature and his heart to the witness of God's Spirit. Now, in this word of Abed's objection, faces an even tougher obstacle. For God is morally, or rather, God is not morally obligated to provide a revelation of himself to persons who he knew would freely reject that revelation, since God knew it wouldn't do any good. But it's possible that God has so providentially
3: ordered the world that anyone who he knew would freely respond to his revelation if they had it does, in fact, receive such a revelation. Now, how could Eddie possibly Disprove
0: that. It would be sheer speculation. And thus I think his objection is simply not successful. What about his second objection based on the commands in the Bible to slaughter the Canaanite peoples? Well, this objection can be formulated I think as follows. Premise one, if God commanded the Israelis to kill all the Canaanites, God would be immoral. Two, God cannot be immoral. Therefore, God cannot have commanded the Israelis to kill all the Canaanites. Now again, even if successful, what does this argument prove? It only proves that the Israelis were mistaken in thinking God had so commanded them. In their nationalistic fervor, they went too far. Thus, this argument is really nothing more than just an argument against biblical inerrancy, which is not an issue under debate tonight. In any case, I think the first premise is false, once again. God does not have the same moral duties that we do. It would be morally
2: wrong if any Tabash were to pull a dagger from his briefcase and kill me
0: here on the spot. But, if God wanted to strike me dead right now, that's wholly within his
3: prerogative. How and when I die is at his discretion, and I think most of us recognize this.
0: That's why, for example, opponents of capital punishment will say to its defenders, who do think you are to play God. Thus, God has the liberty to command the Israelis to destroy the Canaanites. The Israelis were acting
3: as his agents, his proxies. It's important to understand this was during a period
0: of Israeli history when the government was a theocracy. God was in direct command. And this no longer obtains today. It needs only to be added that God never does something without a morally sufficient reason for doing it in this case the israelis did not in fact carry out god's command and as a result it eventually led to israel's own apostasy and own destruction by babylon in 586 bc so i think god had good reasons for issuing this command and thus this objection is just as fallacious as the first now, Eddie raises a final objection concerning the immortality of the soul, and I'm simply not going to get into that in tonight's debate, because there are Christians who are not dualists who uh, hold to a form of Christian materialism, anthropologically speaking, and believe that in the uh, resurrection state, the body will be raised to life again. So, some of these same arguments are actually given by Christian philosophers like Peter van and Wagen at the University of Notre Dame. I, myself... I'm a substance dualist, but as this is an issue which divides Christians, I don't think it needs to be an issue in tonight's debate. So in conclusion, then, I think we've seen good reasons to think that Christianity is true, and we've not seen any good reasons to think that humanism is true. And for that reason, I count myself enthusiastically a Christian.
2: Each speaker will now have a 10-minute rebuttal. Mr. Thomas, you first. Well, I'm afraid Dr. Craig can't have it both ways. He says that the inerrancy of the Bible is not uh, something that we're dealing with tonight, but yes, it is because he believes that the Christian doctrine that he asserts derives from the Bible. He says, the Bible says there's only salvation through Jesus. The Bible says God calls people to Him. Well, if the Bible is not infallible, then we can question all phases of the Bible. So that doesn't really work. You can't have it both ways. Now, in terms of... He mentioned the problem of human free will and that we have a right to accept or reject God. But you see, here's the problem. In his article, by no other name, he says that we are so hopelessly corrupt that the only way we human beings can ever find any kind of salvation is not even through our own righteousness, but through the uh, uh, salvific, expiatory sacrifice of Jesus. Well, you see, the point is, is that if our default mechanism on the computer of our very being is such that we are automatically corrupt and sinful, God could have done it the other way. You know, sinful people still have free will to do good, so basically good people... Could still have free will to do evil, so God could have made us inclined toward righteousness rather than inclined toward basic sinfulness, and still not have uh, and still not have thwarted our free will. So, therefore, there is no excuse for God to have made us with a basic mechanism that inclines toward evil, as opposed to inclined toward righteousness, such that regardless of how good we are, unless we believe in something very improbable 2,000 years ago, we are burnt in hell forever. That is very, very unfair of the biblical God. Now, as far as Dr. Craig's not dealing with the immortality of the soul, yes, that is very much an issue, because you see, if Dr. Craig wants us to believe that for all eternity we're going to be in heaven or hell, he better give some way of proving that there is something within us which we can logically and reasonably have certainty will survive death in the first place so we can go on to experience either heaven or hell, and he simply dropped the point. Now as far as moral values is concerned, this is very interesting. Richard Swinburne, the eminent theistic philosopher, has said that if morality is objective, the naturalistic of it is correct and morality is based on a set of logically necessary truths. Remember, he said the naturalistic, not the supernaturalistic account. Swinburne goes on to say that torturing children is wrong and remains so whatever commands any person issue. Swinburne, like Dr. Craig, regards God to be a personal entity. Thus, it's unavoidable that even if God ordered the torture of children, it would be wrong. So God's ordering the slaughter of innocent children among the Amalekites in 1 Samuel chapter 15 was clearly wrong. You can't have it both ways. Now, if Christianity were true, then our moral intuitions would originate with God. Now, Dr. Craig's article, No Other Name, He admits that he does not like the doctrine of hell and wishes universal salvation were true instead. Well now, just a minute here. If Dr. Craig's moral intuitions originate with God, then we would expect Dr. Craig's moral intuition to support eternal hellfire. But that's not the case. Dr. Craig clearly states that he wishes universal salvation were true. So, if it is the moral intuition that motivates Dr. Craig to desire a leniency, that the God he worships will not provide, is that moral intuition to essentially disagree with this God something that also stems from God? Did God impute in Bill Craig the moral compunction to wish? that God were more lenient and that salvation were universally available? If so, then God is essentially criticizing himself. Thus, by Dr. Craig's own words, he is negating the argument that objective moral standards must be rooted in the Christian God because he has a moral compunction about the way his God is carrying out the process of salvation. And Dr. Craig admits he wishes that all good people were saved, not just Christians. Now, Dr. Craig talked about the beginning of the universe. Now, I agree with Dr. Craig that things which begin to exist in space and time have to have a cause. That is again, things that begin to exist in, and I emphasize in, space and time. But according to the Big Bang Theory, which Dr. Craig accepts, the beginning of the universe was not preceded by any earlier moment in time. Rather, the beginning of the universe is the very origin of space and time itself. When we speak of cause and effect, the cause always stands in temporal relation to the effect, usually preceding the effect in time. However, if time and space did not exist prior to the Big Bang, then we cannot speak about any cause of the Big Bang because there can be no cause and effect if time does not exist. As the late Carl Sagan said, if the Big Bang Theory is true, there's nothing for a creator to do. It's like asking, what is north of the North Pole? As far as the contingency argument is concerned, Dr. Craig says that everything has to have a reason. But he gave no evidence to show that everything has to have a reason based upon some intelligent design. You see, he's begging the question, because if there is no God, then there is no being that create some kind of reason. So if there is no God, he can't assume that there is a God just to try to prove it. Uh, If the universe has no omniscient, intelligent, all-knowing, all-good force that started it and continues to sustain it, if it is just a process that doesn't have a personal God behind it, then there is no reason for things to happen. Now, if I drop my pen, it will hit the ground, and the reason for that is gravity, but that's not a conscious, purposeful design. So, Dr. Craig can't say, well, we need a reason for everything to happen, so we're going to invent a God. Just like he wants to say, well, I have trouble locating the source of moral values without my biblical God, so I'm going to invent a biblical God to be the receptacle and to house those moral values. Uh, you can't have it both ways. Now turn to the resurrection. The resurrection is so preposterous that Dr. Craig has been unable to overcome its initial dramatic improbability. Dr. Craig never really denied that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, and he never refuted my discrediting of the supernatural whatsoever. He suggested that those who deny the resurrection. He's always said, presuppose that miracles are impossible, but that's not my position. They are logically possible, however they are extremely unlikely. There's no reason to say that Jesus' resurrection is more likely than the moon's being actually made of green cheese and the existence of Santa Claus. Now the historical evidence for the resurrection fielded by Dr. Craig is quite weak. Regarding the empty tomb, even if Jesus' tomb were empty, That in itself would not show that a supernatural uh, resurrection took place. There are good reasons in any event, though, to believe that the empty tomb is anything but a legend. Our earliest source, 1 Corinthians, does not even mention or even imply an empty tomb. It was not until around 70 AD, when the Gospel of Mark was written, that we find any reference to an empty tomb. Forty years or so is plenty of time for a mythological legend to develop. Regarding the alleged appearance of the resurrected Jesus, our earliest source is again 1 Corinthians. Here the Greek word opthe is translated as appear, but does not necessarily mean physically appear. It can describe either a physical appearance or a non-physical appearance, and there is very good reason to believe that Paul's experience of Jesus as set forth in 1 Corinthians did not involve a physical appearance. According to Acts 316, Paul did not see Jesus at all. All he saw was a bright light and heard a voice. Only in the Gospels written long after 1 Corinthians do we find any mention of the physical appearance of Jesus in a resurrected state. So, this along with the difficulty of proving a supernatural miracle renders it highly unlikely that Jesus was seen alive after his death. As, you know, in, in Acts 26.8 it says... Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Well, my answer to Acts is because no one alive has ever seen the dead raised. If we knew that one out of every hundred dead people would be resurrected, it would be a different story. But our empirical investigation of the world around us, our logic our discernment doesn't show that. And so in a book enthusiastically endorsed, on its back cover by Dr. Craig, Christian philosopher Stephen T. Davis says, clearly anyone who wants to argue in favor of belief in the resurrection of Jesus, as I am doing now, must make a powerful case. And Dr. Davis goes on to say, it must be strong enough to overcome the bias that all rational people share against highly unusual and miraculous events. On the same page that this quote begins, Dr. Davis also says, I believe Christians need to recover a sense of the shocking absurdity of the very idea of resurrection. So Dr. Craig endorses, endorses, in fact, the writings of a fellow Christian who admits that the very idea of the resurrection is shockingly absurd. So certainly the Christian God is the most vicious sadist in the universe if he would punish us eternally just because we couldn't bring ourselves to believe something shockingly absurd. If our eternal damnation hangs in the balance then God owes us more evidence. If we know enough to know that God has made revelation, then God poses a further revelation to meet the honest intellectual inquiry of our minds. God has been too hidden to justify sending us non-believers and other believers to hell. Christianity cannot be true. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Robert.
1: now have
0: I still haven't heard any good reason to think that humanism is true. We've heard attacks upon the Bible and against Christianity, but I've not heard yet any good reason to think, first of all, that atheism is true. Uh, Eddie raised the problem of evil, but in the uh, last speech I pointed out that philosophers agree there's no incompatibility between the two. And I also argued that evil actually proves the existence of God, and Eddie didn't respond to either of those rejoinders. Secondly, I said there's no good reason to think that human beings are the foundation of moral value. If God exists, he's the foundation. If God does not exist, then human beings are just animals. And animals don't have morality. If a lion kills a zebra, it doesn't murder it. If a pack of hyenas takes the zebra's carcass from the lion, they take it, but they don't steal it. They're not guilty of theft. And on an uh, atheistic view, people are just animals. So this presents a real difficulty for the humanist. How do you justify his set of human values? This uh, question is critical for us who live in the post-Holocaust age. Peter Haas, in his book Morality After Auschwitz, The Radical Challenge of the Nazi ethic, asked the question, how could an entire society have willingly participated in a state-sponsored program of mass torture and genocide for over a decade without any serious opposition? Listen to his answer. He says, far from being contemptuous of ethics, the perpetrators acted in strict conformity with an ethic, which held that
3: however difficult or unpleasant the task might have been, mass extermination of the Jews and
0: Gypsies was entirely justified. The Holocaust was possible only because a new ethic was in place that did not define the arrest and deportation of Jews as wrong, and in fact defined it as ethically tolerable and even good.
3: Paz goes on to
0: point out that because of its internal coherence and consistency, the Nazi ethic could not be discredited from within. So how does the secular humanist propose to show the Nazis that they were wrong? You can't find moral values in a test tube. Without a transcendent anchor point for your moral values, you are lost in sociocultural relativism. And there's simply no way to be able to consistently condemn the values of National Socialist Germany in favor of the values of the Western democracies. If God doesn't exist, I think we're basically left, as Nietzsche said, with nihilism, the destruction of all meaning and value in life. We're certainly not left with humanism. So we've not seen any good reason to become a humanist tonight. Now, are there good reasons to think that Christianity is true? Well, I first presented two arguments for the existence of God. First, the cosmological argument. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. And he did not dispute, in fact, he affirmed the second premise that the universe began to exist. But he disputes the first premise that whatever begins to exist has a cause. He says this is only true of things in space and time, but not of the universe as a whole. I think that's a gratuitous exception that he wants to make. The principle of causality is not a natural physical law that would be different if physical parameters were different. It is a metaphysical principle that is true in all possible worlds, that something can't come out of nothing. Being cannot come from non-being. And honestly, folks, if the alternative to theism tonight is to believe that the whole universe just popped into being uncaused out of nothing, And I say, let the atheist take that view, because nothing, I think, requires more faith than that. Now, Eddie also says, causes have to exist prior to their effects, and there is no priority, temporally, to the Big Bang singularity. No, causes do not have to be prior to their effects. Causes can be simultaneous with their effects. For example, a heavy ball resting on a cushion being a cause of the depression in the cushion. They could exist forever like that. And you would have a simultaneity of cause and effect. So I think that he's utterly uh, failed to refute the first argument that I gave. I think it makes it plausible that there is a creator of the universe. What about the contingency argument? Remember, it went like this. Everything has a reason for its existence. If the universe has a reason, then that reason is God. And thirdly, the universe is a thing. And from that it follows that the universe has God as its reason. And he says, this is question-vaking because there's no reason to think there is an intelligent designer. Well, I'm not arguing there's an intelligent designer. What I'm simply saying is that when we look around at the world and we think about things philosophically, we see that things have reasons why they exist. They're either contingent, in which case they have causes, or they're necessary in their existence, in which case they exist necessarily. Now, imagine you were walking on the beach and you found a large, translucent globe lying there. You would surely say, where did this come from? Why does this exist? Well, suppose the globe were a little bit bigger, suppose it were the size of a house, you'd still wonder why it was there, where it came from. Suppose it were as big as the United States, the size wouldn't make any difference. You'd still say, why does it exist? Suppose it was the size of a galaxy, the question would still remain. Suppose it were the size of the universe? You would still say, why does such a thing exist? So it seems to me that first premise is certainly plausible, more plausible than it's contradictory. And from that it follows, therefore, that God must exist as a necessary being and the reason for the existence of the universe. I then turn to reasons to believe that Jesus is the decisive revelation of God. And here A. repudiated this whole approach by saying that the initial improbability of the resurrection is so great it cannot be overcome. Extraordinary events require extraordinary evidence. Let me say two things about this. First of all, this commonsensical slogan is demonstrably false. Probability theorists from Condorcet to John Stuart Mill discussed thoroughly what sort of evidence you have to have in order to establish the occurrence of a highly improbable event. And what they realized is that you cannot simply hold that extraordinary events require extraordinary evidence. Because then you would never believe the report on last night's news of the winning pick in the lottery. Because that's an extraordinarily improbable event, which would be absurd. Rather, what probability theorists found is that you must also consider the probability that if the event did not occur, then the evidence would be just as it is. In the case of the resurrection, this is the probability that if there were no resurrection, that we would have an empty tomb resurrection appearances, the origin of the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection. And that, uh, I think, is so improbable that it can counterbalance any intrinsic improbability that you might think lies in the resurrection itself. The second point, though, I want to make about this is that the resurrection is not improbable intrinsically. What is improbable is the hypothesis that Jesus rose naturally from the dead, that is, Incredibly improbable, but the Christian agrees that that is not likely to have happened. The hypothesis is, God raised Jesus from the dead. And given the existence of God established by the cosmological, the contingency, and the argument from evil that Eddie didn't review, uh, we have good reasons to believe that God exists. So this is not intrinsically improbable bad. I'm sure that most scholars today believe in the historicity of the empty tomb. He's right, it isn't mentioned in Paul explicitly, but it is implied in Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. And moreover, it's mentioned in the pre-Mark and Passion story, which goes back within the first few years after Jesus' death. So the fact is most New Testament critics accept the historicity in the empty tomb. With respect to the post-mortem appearances, again, he's correct that the Greek word, faith does not indicate whether these are physical or non-physical appearances. It just means that Jesus appeared. Paul's experience on the Damascus Road was unusual because it was a post-Ascension encounter. And thus Paul says, he appeared to me as one born out of time uh, because Christ had already ascended. And he, didn't, and he didn't respect to the problem. The origin of the disciples' belief in the resurrection was utterly improbable that they would have come up with this given their Jewish thought frame. Notice he provides no alternative explanation and that's in line with uh, contemporary scholarship. Contemporary scholarship recognizes no alternative explanation to the, uh, these facts other than the resurrection of Jesus. Now, what about
3: any of these objections to
0: Christianity, such as the doctrine of hell? I want to re-emphasize, biblical inerrancy is not the issue tonight because many Christians don't accept biblical inerrancy. What we're dealing with are those essential facts not established by evidence. He says, but look, God could have made me more inclined to accept the truth. I would argue, number one, that God overcomes this by his prevenient grace, my proclivity to turn away from him. And then secondly, there's no guarantee that in a world such as Eddie envisions, that the balance between saved and lost would be any better than it is in this world. He says, but Craig wishes universal salvation were true. And I say God wishes it as well. It is only because of the free will of human beings that universal salvation is not true. And thus I think this provides no substantive uh, objection to the Christian faith.
2: Okay, well Dr. Craig says, so Biblical inerrancy is not an issue. Fine. Biblical inerrancy is not an issue. Let's take the Bible as possibly wrong, and that the doctrine of hell is wrong, and that no good, decent, loving God, will send you to hell forever for not believing in Jesus. Notice that Dr. Craig never responded to my points about the supernatural generally. Let me read what Thomas Jefferson, uh, third president of the United States, once wrote to John Adams, the second president of the United States. And the day will come with the mystical generation of Jesus by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin will be classed with the fable of the generation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. You see, our third president of the United States was worried about supernatural claims that are unprovable. Now, Dr. Craig says that there is no reason to reject these supernatural claims if you have God as the Factor in making them come about. Okay. Well, then my claim that I arrived here tonight on a Martian-built flying saucer is implausible until I tell you that God gave me that flying saucer directly. Does that add anything? Of course not. Well, that's no difference than Dr. Craig's position. Now, with respect to uh, this concept of the heavy bowling ball resting on a cushion being simultaneous causation so that the cause could have happened and cause an effect. Remember, when that bowling ball presses in on that cushion, its pressing in precedes the indentation. The indentation goes along with the bowling ball the cushion doesn't see the bowling ball come and say, "Okay, this is heavy. I'm going to intent and before it gets here." So when we speak logically about cause and effect, we are always talking—if we're speaking logically—about a cause that precedes its effect in time. And since there was no time and space before the Big Bang, uh, we are simply saying, "What's north of the North Pole?" Now, Dr. Craig assumes that it would be preposterous for something to pop into existence out of nothing. Well, where does Dr. Craig's invisible God pop into existing out of nothing? But you see, what he does is he says, okay, because this is God, that he is exempt from causation. He is exempt from the laws of cause and effect. But then he's just making up an excuse so he can avoid the laws of cause and effect, which he says otherwise obtained, so he can have an excuse for his God to remain uncaused. But that doesn't solve the problem. Now, with respect to the, the uh, question of uh, the resurrection being so unusual regarding Jewish thought, that it was such a paradigm shift that something supernatural had to happen, that is not evidence of the supernatural. If I were able to convince Dr. Craig, or some other Christian, that reincarnation is true, that would not make it true. If tomorrow morning, saw Dr. Craig at the L.A. airport singing Hare Krishna, handing out books of the Bhagavad Gita. That doesn't mean that the Hare Krishna would become true, even though that's a major paradigm shift. So you can have major paradigm shifts explainable without uh, uh, without recourse to the supernatural. Now, as far as objective moral values is concerned, Dr. Craig always says that we cannot have an objective basis for condemning rape without the Biblical God. I think it's time for Bill Greg to have a talk with his God, because that God condones rape. In Deuteronomy 20.14, it is ordered that God's people take the women, children, and cattle of conquered territory and the spoils of war, which spoils are a gift for God. In Numbers 31.18, Moses, with God's approval, orders his men to take for themselves very young girls, if they are virgins, and they are called women children. So we've got a God who's a child molester. God is more than happy to reward Moses for this by urging him to distribute the spoils. Also, rape is never considered wrong with respect to the woman. In Deuteronomy 22, 28, uh, 29, if, if a woman is raped by an unbeatable virgin is raped, she is forced to marry the man who raped her. I mean, this is absolutely preposterous. Also, Jesus had a problem with his prophecies. In Matthew 24-34 and Mark 13-30, he says that the generation of listeners now hearing his words will still be alive at his second coming. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian uh, theologian wrote that these passages are most embarrassing in the Bible and show ignorance on the part of Jesus. We're still waiting for Jesus to come back. And also, uh, we have a problem with the generation of Jesus. In the book of Matthew, it says that Joseph, husband of Mary, had one father named Heli, in another gospel that says his name was Jacob. Joseph couldn't have had two fathers. So you see what we have here is unprovable mythology which does not contradict the value of secular humanism, which is based on evidence of the empirical universe. And that is why secular humanism is true, because it looks to the evidence, not the fabricated mythology. In my closing speech, let me attempt to draw the threads of the debate together this evening. First of all, I argue that there's no good reason to think that
0: humanism is true. We saw, first of all, that the humanist is committed to the position that God does not exist. And we haven't heard any good uh, argument for that tonight. We first heard about a presentation of the problem of evil, but after I responded to that, that dropped out of the debate this evening. Secondly, I argue that there are no good reasons to think that human beings are the foundation of moral value. If God exists, He's the
3: foundation of moral value. If God does not exist, there's no reason to think human beings have value. They're just animals, and thus humanism is an absurd leap of
0: faith. It's a faith commitment to the intrinsic value of human beings in an atheistic universe. And honestly, folks, I just don't see any reason to think that faith commitment is true. Now here Eddie begins to, again, clear in uh, biblical trivia, he says God commands rape. And that is utterly not true. That is taken out of context. What he's uh, those passages are talking about is taking uh, these women whose husbands have been slain as wives. It is to protect them, because in that day and age widows have no means of support or sustenance. So this is actually an expression of God's mercy, is it not? a matter of commanding rape. So I think he's just simply missed the philosophical argument here, which is that the humanist has to give us some reason to think that human beings are objectively valuable in a non theistic world, and that he hasn't done it. Now secondly, have we seen some good reasons that Christianity is true? First of all, we've seen two arguments, really three if you count the argument from evil, for the existence of God. First, the cosmological argument. Here, Eddie, reduces his argument now to simply saying that when the bowling ball rests on a cushion, it first presses in, and then the cushion goes down. Now, I'm talking about the bowling ball has been resting on the cushion, say, for eternity. The cause and effect are simultaneous. Or think of links in a chain, one supporting the other. The causation is simultaneous. Similarly, the cause of the origin of the universe is simultaneous with the creation of the universe. And he says, but you're making God pop into existence. Obviously not. I said he's a timeless, uncaused, necessary being. And he says, well then he's an exception to the causal principle. No, the causal principle is whatever begins to exist as a cause. Something cannot come into existence out of nothing. So God isn't an exception to the principle. Rather, the principle simply doesn't apply to God because God never began to exist. What about the contingency argument? Well, I argue here that if everything has a reason for its existence and the universe is a thing, the universe must have a reason for its existence, and Eddie did not refute the argument. So we've got good grounds for thinking God exists. What about that final point that Jesus Christ is the decisive revelation of God? I argue that it is a false
3: principle to think that extraordinary events require extraordinary evidence, and also that the resurrection is not intrinsically improbable.
0: And he said, but look, then I could say I came to find an offline saucer. Sure, you could say that, but what is the evidence for that? In the case of the resurrection, I'm not just saying that's what the Bible says. I'm saying the majority of New Testament scholars
3: today agree that there's empirical evidence for this. The empty tomb,
0: the postmortem mortem appearances, the origin of the
3: disciples' faith. And you've got to give us some kind of explanation of
0: those facts, and none has been forthcoming in the debate this evening. So it seems to me that it's very evident where the of the evidence lies. It lies on the side of Christianity. Now, I expect there are probably three broad groups of people here tonight. Many of you are Christians and, and you don't need convincing. Many of you are humanists or atheists and have come to see Eddie Mae be out of it tonight. And I don't think that I can convince you. You're committed by faith to the faith of humanism. But I think many of you, probably tonight, are seekers, what I would call, spiritual seekers, looking to find God as a reality in your life. And I would just invite you to do what I did. I wasn't raised in a Christian home or family, but when I was a teenager, I began to ask the big questions in life. And in the search for answers, I began to read the New Testament. And as I did, I found there was an authenticity about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, a ring of truth about his words, that I couldn't deny. And to make a long story short, after about six months of the most intense soul searching, and I just yielded my life to God and experienced this sort of spiritual rebirth within, God became a, a living reality in my life, a reality I've walked with for the last 30 years. And I'd encourage you to do the same thing that I did. Pick up a New Testament, begin to read the Gospels, and ask if this couldn't be true. I believe it could change your life, just as it changed mine.
1: Answer period. Anyone who is interested in asking a question, if you would stand in line behind one of the two mics here. ask a question, please, the first, most important thing is to please be sure to address one of the two speakers. The speaker that you address will then have one minute to answer the question, and then the other person will have a minute to respond to that question. And so, we'll start on this mic here, if you would address the question.
2: I have a question for Doctor. If as humans, you know, we have a right to expect from an almost all-powerful God, an unambiguous blueprint salvation as opposed to direct proof for someone hearsay for the rest of us. How do you explain the God of the Bible as allowing millions, if not billions, of sincere, decent, honest seekers? The
0: confusion that would allow people such as Mahatma Gandhi to separate hell forever for a mere mistake, an infinite punishment for a finite creature. And The second part of that would be, could you please explain how anybody benefits from eternal punishment since after all is done and said there's no chance for redemption, it's merely revenge. I don't is this on Uh, I think I dealt with that question in the debate tonight. That was one of Eddie's main points. First of all, I said that's not an essential doctrine firsthand. Uh, and therefore that's not really
3: an issue for the debate this evening. But secondly, I said that I think God simply has to give a sufficient revelation of himself. And the Bible says that he's done that. I believe that any sincere inquire after truth will come to know God in a personal way. And I would also say that it's very possible that God so providentially ordered the world that all those who would freely respond to his love and grace if they were to hear about it are born at times so as long as that's even possible, I think it shows that there's no
2: incompatibility here. Well, of course, Dr. Craig just said that the infallibility of the Bible is something he doesn't want to get into tonight. So since he has left open the possibility that it's not infallible, let me just say that I believe that the Bible is fallible, and it's a horrible mistake of the Bible to say that regardless of how good you are, you go to hell forever. I know a lot of sincere atheists and agnostics and Tibetan Buddhists and others who look very intently, including me over a lifetime, to try to find the truth. And I never got the internal message that unless I accept Jesus, I'm going to go to hell forever. Now, my mother, the Auschwitz survivor, gave up completely on life afterwards. She felt that all forms of religion, particularly Christianity, were very offensive. So she's now burning in hell.
1: So it means that if Hitler had accepted Jesus a little before dying, he'd be in heaven. And now my mother and other Auschwitz survivors uh, would be in, in hell. This is a ludicrous, uh, doctrine that stands on nothing whatsoever. Next question. Dr. Craig, we are told that the... Uh, listen, two- aren't we supposed to have a question for you? I understood you would have Sure. Uh, <laughs> that sounds good. Uh, then does someone have a question for I have a question for you, um, Dr. Craig. was able to give us evidence, based on the doctrines of Christianity, about the existence of God. Um, however, I'm still looking more waiting to hear evidence of your doctrine of human, humanism. Well you see, Dr. Gregg, with all due respect,
2: didn't give us evidence. He gave us hearsay claims, which are supposed to overcome the supernatural, and what I did, was the evidence I gave, was the evidence that we use to determine everything else in our lives. The same evidence where through our sensory perceptions and scientific investigation and common understanding we come to know that something is what it is. The same evidence that lets you know that the ocean is over there and the mountain is over here, or that the sun is out or that it's raining. But you see what Dr. Gregg is trying to say is that with no direct evidence, we are supposed to believe something entirely supernatural, which is not repeatable or testable today. Dr. Gregg has never said, well, let me take you down to this morgue, and I'll show you ten people who resurrect, and you'll see them float up into heaven to show that it's possible. So all he has done, essentially, is to show us something based on blind faith that happened 2,000 years ago
1: with no direct proof. Mr. Quantz, have you ever seen an atom? I'm sorry. Oh, oh, I'm going to, to have to just let you one question. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Well, I think you
0: recognize if you were listening carefully to the debate that that's not at all what I did. We had three arguments for the existence of God and I. One from evil, one from cosmological argument, one from contingency. And if you're going to deny the conclusion of those arguments, you've got to deny one of the premises, otherwise the conclusion will Because humanism is a value judgment. It's a value judgment about the intrinsic worth of human beings. And you can't prove value judgments by scientific evidence. So that his position is internally self-contradictory. You can't find moral values in a test
3: tube. There cannot be scientific evidence for a value judgment. And thus, humanism is internally self-contradictory. It says only
0: believe what you can prove by scientific evidence, but then in, in itself is a belief in a value judgment about human beings not based on scientific evidence. So it's internally incoherent. Yes, Dr. Craig,
2: we are told that the Judeo-Christian God is a spirit and we are made in his image. And why aren't we all invisible?
0: Well I think when it says that we're made in the image of God, this means For one thing, that uh, man is God's representative on Earth. As God is sovereign over the universe, so God has placed man on Earth to be the steward and the caretaker for for this Earth. Uh, In a more philosophical sense, I think it
3: means that we're created in God's image in the sense that we are persons. And in that sense, we stand apart from all the rest of creation. And that we are self-conscious persons endowed in with intellect, emotions, and will, and thus can have a personal relationship with
0: God. So I think that's what's meant when it talks about being created in the personal image of God. And that is, by the way, why we have intrinsic moral value as human beings. We're not just
2: animals. Well, certainly if we're made in the image of God, and God is an incorporeal being, and God doesn't have a Physical mind than a physical brain, we shouldn't have to have physical brains in order to have consciousness. So I think that's a very serious problem. Now, if God, of course, is the focal point of these moral values, you've got a pretty vicious God. In the Book of Numbers in the Bible, he orders somebody killed just for picking up sticks on the Sabbath. God orders uh, two homosexuals who share consensual love with each other to be put to death. Uh, I don't want to have that kind of moral values imposed on me by such a bloodthirsty creature. Also, Dr. Gregg still hasn't answered why these great evidentiary supernatural events occurred thousands of years ago, but we moderns don't get a chance to see them today. All these responses look within. Well, I've looked within, and I've looked within, and I don't get the same thing Dr. Gregg does. Why is his introspection superior to my introspection? Why is his internal message of God um, uh, better than my internal message that there is no supernatural thing? With Mr. Yes, I do. First, I have a statement, and then I have a question. My statement. Could you just. No question. question. Oh, real quick. Um, I think that this is an issue, a lot of it, on the morality issue, is relativism. And the problem that we're dealing with here is, is whose morality we're placing ourselves up against. If there is a, uh, an eternal God who is completely moral and completely correct, then and according to Isaiah 64, our righteousness is as filthy rags. Uh, or literary, literally translated administration rags. So my question for you is that sometimes whenever we're up against something we don't understand, and we're not as good as, we become afraid. And this is a very personal question. For introspection or for uh, for sharing. Are you afraid of God? Are you afraid of hell? Are you afraid of your own analysis? Because it's we all have to I'm not afraid of God. I'm not afraid of hell because these things are so preposterous I don't believe they exist. Now, if God wants me to believe in him, I think he owes me more. If God says, you know what, Eddie, I'm going to send you to the barbecue room for all eternity. Unless you believe in me, he's got to give me evidence. So far, I've seen God say things like the man should rule over the woman. Well, let's say the woman is more intelligent. Genesis 3.16 doesn't allow for that book of Thessalonians it says that the woman shouldn't speak in the church and ask her husband. So you have the Bible imposing all of these inferiorities on women and there's no external justification for claiming that women should be subordinate to men. And then you have God ordering these people to be killed and Take thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. So if some poor woman is practicing some witchcraft, you're supposed to take her out and execute her. I mean, this is a bloodthirsty God, and if he caps it off by sending good people to hell forever, I don't want to know this creature. He is a demon. Thank you. Well, I, I think that... I think that answer... made it evidently exactly like he wants and he doesn't want this kind of God. He doesn't want to believe in a sort of God. So it's not a matter for I think any of evidence and argument. It's a matter of the will. That this is a God's which with. He simply wants nothing to do. And
0: God will say to you, if that is your desire, alright, God, you'll be done. As I said, in one sense, I don't believe God sends anybody to hell. God wants every person to be saved. And he tries to draw every person to himself and to save every person. And the only reason people are lost is because they don't want anything to do with God and they, they reject him. So, really, hell is a human creation. It's not, it's not something that God wants. Do you have a question for Dr. Craig? I'll ask a question to Dr. Craig.
1: Dr. Craig, you said, uh, without a God we have no special status over the other animals. Would, wouldn't you agree that if, in fact, no God exists, that the tenets and methods of humanism are a nonetheless noble pursuit in lieu of any meaning derived from outside ourselves? Yes, I would really agree. that The tenets and the goals of humanism are noble pursuits. Um, and what I'm doing
0: tonight is I'm not arguing against those goals. Desires. On the contrary, what I want to offer you is a foundation for those desires. I, we share the same beliefs, and in one sense, we believe in the intrinsic dignity of human beings, and in, in intrinsic human rights, uh, and the fellowship of, of humanity. But what I'm arguing is that apart from a transcendent foundation of those, we have no basis for criticizing the National Socialist Germany or the apartheid South Africana or the genocide that goes on in Cambodia or, or in Bosnia. So it's not the, the, the pursuits and the goals of communism that I disagree with. I, I agree with those, but I said we need to have a foundation in our philosophy and life for affirming those values in the economy. Well, Dr. Craig said a few minutes ago that God tries to draw every person to himself. All I can say is, boy, is this one awkward God. So he puts
2: my mother through Auschwitz, have her go through these horrible experiences, which kills her ability to have any enjoyment in life. She thinks that all religion is ludicrous. And then the moment she dies, God says, sister, you thought Auschwitz was tough? Wait, you see where I'm sending you now? I mean, this is certainly something which I think we have a right to disbelieve in. And if it is true that God is that way, then He owes us evidence because He owes us some evidentiary proof before sending us to the grill room forever. Let God, for instance, turn Pacific Coast Highway to the road to Damascus and have it big, as I drive up here in to a big sunlight or whatever here, and say, Eddie, hey, why dost thou reject me, come on to me? Something which, to me, would give me the same inner experience as Dr. Craig. So why does God single Dr. Craig up for those inner experiences, but leaves me out of it? Why is he partisan to Dr. Craig and not to me? I want those experiences. I challenge him. God, listen to me, show yourself. If not, I won't believe in him. Simple. to. be a little bit more quiet a little bit more respectful the speakers.
1: Question for Mr. Tomasch. Yes, question for Mr. Tomasch. I here in Atlanta and I was third at the debate that Dr. Craig had with Dr. Peter
0: Atkins, a physical chemist from England. And the question was posed to Dr. Atkins as to why, what explanation did he give for
2: the disciples coming up with the story of the resurrection since they were eventually put to death for it. And the best he could come up Disciples of the Lord, living out in the desert in the Lord, could you, you haven't yet given an explanation as to why the disciples came up, or where this uh, story of the resurrection came from? Can you answer that question, please? First of all, the idea of resurrection was always floating around. Now, even though the Jews thought of the resurrection at the end of time, and they didn't think of some individual Messiah resurrecting, the mythology or the template, the basis for that was always there. Secondly. You cannot argue that just because people come up with a new mythology, in an already superstitious age, that that means that something it has to be true. So if you have people believing in reincarnation, and then the next day they say, you know what, rather than reincarnation after that we all go to a planet made of green cheese, that doesn't mean that it's true. What you're trying to say is that the fact that people make a paradigm shift is evidence of the supernatural. And I'm saying, on the principle of conservatism, the explanation which is the most reasonable, there are other more rational and logical and provable explanations than to say the supernatural. Again, if Dr. Craig was at the LA airport tomorrow dancing Hare Krishna,
0: that would be such a paradigm shift for him, but that does not mean that the Hare Krishna religion is true. When you have a paradigm shift like this, the historian is obligated to provide some explanation for why this and any hasn't released any explanation why this group of men, broken, dispirited, crushed by the crucifixion of Jesus, which under Old Testament teaching showed this man out to be a heretic, it meant that he could not have been Messiah if they had entertained such hopes, why this band of men should suddenly and sincerely come to believe such an un-Jewish thing as that God raised him from the dead, such that they would be willing to go to for this. Now, I just ask, what is the explanation for this, along with the empty tomb and the post-mortem appearances? The historian has to provide something, and I think the best explanation is, these men were telling the truth. Why not believe them? Do you
1: have a question for Dr. Craig? Uh, Do you have a question? I have a question for both parties, and if those who is up can answer first. I would like to each to come the following. Uh, recently, physicists have discovered there is enough dark matter in the universe to pull the universe back in after it expands, in an and ever-expanding and contracting universe so that There are lots of big bangs, all through time, whatever time is. There was never a beginning, there never was one big bang, bang. It was just always there. There's always and matter, there always will be matter ever expanding and contracting. And how does that fit into each of your sides? What you describe is the oscillating mock of the universe, and I think that your information is I simply out of date here. I have here an AP news release from January
3: 9th of uh, last year, uh, which indicates that five teams of astronomers uh, at uh, Princeton, Harvard, Lawrence Berkeley
0: National Laboratory, and so forth have determined that the universe is not dense enough for it to recontract. In fact, the expansion is actually accelerating, according to an article I have here just from February 10th, I don't know, January 10th, uh, January 10th, it says that this about destroys the idea that there could be any way for the universe to come back together into a big crunch. So that this old oscillating model simply won't work, it's cosmologically and an observationally untenable. There was an absolute beginning.
2: And you've got to explain why did that occur here at the universe come from? Well, whether or not the universe according expands its is not really the issue. The issue is that if there was a beginning and the Big Bang was a beginning, you cannot imbue our understanding of cause and effect in time and space to an event before time is fixed. That is to say, if the universe is 15 million years ago, there wasn't a 16 million years ago. There was no time before time at which a causal event could take place. And also, if God is an immaterial entity, how does God reach out from immateriality to effect an event in the material universe? Again, Dr. Craig says, well, his mind, which is immaterial, can make his arm raise. But Dr. Craig's mind works through a platform of a physical brain. There is no physical frame or medium from which God to work through. So therefore, the concept of a supernatural cause of the beginning of time and space is pure speculation without any justification. Have a question for Mr. Yes, Mr. Uh, if you would grant that the suffering that your mother went through in Auschwitz was something that should not have happened, then you would be implying that there is a way that things ought to be, But, without God, how would you define the way things ought to be, or the design that things ought to be? See, I don't need recourse to a supernatural being to look upon the scenes in Auschwitz and say this shouldn't happen. I don't need recourse to a supernatural being to say that the Serbian militiamen should not shoot down uh, innocent women and children in Bosnia. I don't need recourse to a supernatural being to say that the serial killer should not kill his victims. I don't need recourse to a supernatural being to say that two and two is four. I don't need recourse to a supernatural being to say I should not drive 150 miles down Pacific Coast Highway. The impact, the evidence of our senses and the empirical knowledge we derive from living is our God. But I don't need a supernatural God to say, by the way, in my absence, Auschwitz shouldn't have happened when it was that supernatural God that he's all-powerful who let it happen. Well, again, Eddie just doesn't understand the argument. Uh, the
0: point is that you need God to learn what is objectively right right wrong. It is that you need God's foundation for moral values, otherwise everything relative, socio-culturally relative, and there's no basis for affirming the value of human beings. Think of my example of the aliens from outer space coming and looking at us the way we look at pigs and cows. Why do I think human beings are essentially valuable on atheistic view? The argument that the student asks is actually a very good one. It's an argument for God for evil. It goes like this. Evil is that which ought not to be, by definition. But if there is a way that the universe ought to be, that implies there's a design plan for the universe. But if there is a design plan for the universe, there must be a designer of the universe. And thus, again, from the very concept of evil as that which ought not to be, so that there must be a designer of the universe as a source of moral value. Unfortunately, we only have time for one more question for each of the participants. Uh,
1: there will be... <laughs> If you have questions that you would like to ask, there will be a reception immediately following this on the 4th. So, one more question
2: for each. This is Dr. Craig. Uh, I'm a of all from Belgium. And uh, I want everybody to know that all the Nazis who have written questions have had the tools on their belt bottles. I can't can not understand. Could you speak some more slowly? In the I, can't uh, I want everybody to know that... Nazis were very good Christians, and uh, uh, Hitler was a Catholic, was community, by the way. And uh, they followed the Christian gods and Christian religion and they massacred and murdered six million innocent people, children. I finally knew that. I was a lucky one I survived. How do you explain the silence of the God or all the gods by this was happening? Well in the first place, Hitler and the Nazis
0: and soldiers who carried out this atrocity are not Christians. Even uh, if they claimed to be members of churches, being a member of a church doesn't make you a Christian. That, that is not what it means to be a Christian. Jesus would not have been a car chambers. So I'm defending what Jesus stood and taught for, not what religious hypocrites who claim to be his followers of Christ. But with respect to the Holocaust, I think God had more or less sufficient reasons for preventing that atrocity. Uh, for example, I don't know this, but perhaps the Holocaust was the means by which the founding of the modern nation of Israel was brought about. Through such an extraordinary atrocity, the world returned to the Jews, their ancient homeland, and the Bible says that God has ways of using Israel to bless the entire world in the and future. We simply have no way of knowing uh, what could, might ultimately, come out of this terrible evil so that I think God has than sufficient reasons for the evil? And there's no way to disprove that, as that's, long as it's possible, true. if it follows there's no weaknesses, that's time.
2: Well, it's interesting that, Dr. Craig God is a very inefficient being, because if the only way to bring about the founding of the State of Israel is by having six really Jews get sacrificed. I think that God needs to take a course in efficiency. child get a bullet in the head? Is there a morally sufficient reason for uh, any of these things to happen? And also, is there a morally sufficient reason for for gays to be put to death just because they love each other? Are we put a mouse Miracles, then he's not being fair to me today, because as Professor Keller said in, in my opening statement, if people would only believe with the aid of miracles then, then we need them today. So I think that that the fact that God does not give this as common evidence like everything else is something which he is wrong in withholding from rational and human beings. And I am obligated them to not believe based on the epistemological considerations.
0: in the conditions in which we're asking to change his need. And I think that's because this models may have this is not the voice of a seeker. This is not the voice of a heart that is open to God. This is a voice that is angry, that's close to God. What in, what would take to falsify I believe, if you would show me that there was an internal contradiction in the concept of God, saying so we can material out the conversion that would disqualify to Jesus if you could uh, uh, show that the resurrection did not occur if we could find the tomb of Jesus
3: or make it such that uh, Jesus did not rise from the dead that would destroy
0: Christian belief so the Christian belief is very closely linked to terrible facts
3: that
1: for more information and resources from Dr. Craig go to
3: reasonablefaith.org